Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. Last week we left off in our journey through the book of Acts with a man named Saul. Saul was going door to door and persecuting Christians in the city of Jerusalem. Now Saul's motivation, Saul's motivation was that he wanted to rid the world of this new Jesus community that had been building up and really raging within the city of Jerusalem. See, Jerusalem was the holy city of the Jewish faith and still is today. And the Jesus community that was brewing in Jerusalem was born out of the Jewish community as well. But the longer that the Jesus community existed and the more that they taught, it came to become clear to the Jewish community that there were some very critical differences about this new people. And those differences really threatened the well-being of the Jewish faith and the Jewish community. You see, first of all, this new Jesus-following community was claiming that, that a man named Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter by trade, was in fact the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. Now, there had been people throughout the last 500 years or so that had clumb and claimed to be the Messiah, so this wasn't something new to them. But what this new community was claiming was, not only was this man the Messiah of Israel, but he was actually God. God become human, come to live on earth, and that although he died the worst form of death, death of a Roman cross, that the lowest form of deprivation that a human being could experience, that even though he died that way, that he rose from the dead. And then they went on to teach that believing this foolishness, would grant a person forgiveness of sin and a pathway to eternal life. And all of this was wildly offensive because the way to forgiveness had always been through the observance of certain rituals that depended on the temple in the heart of the city of Jerusalem. And now these people were teaching that the temple and thereby the major tenets of how their society had operated for a thousand years were obsolete. Now, for some people, this was good news. This meant freedom from a very strange system that they had become captive to. 
But for those in charge, it meant that there was a challenge to what they saw as their God-given authority. These new Christians were seen as a threat to individuals and to society as a whole. And so, so there was this whole movement created to rid the world of them, or at least if we couldn't rid the world of them, to get them as far away from the temple gates as possible. And so a man named Saul of Tarsus begins his inquisition, and the people flee from Jerusalem out into the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria, which, not so coincidentally, is the area that Jesus had told the apostles that they would go to after they had effectively ministered to the people of Jerusalem. And so this is really the setup of where we're going to find ourselves today. Now, we're in the seventh week of a sermon series called How to Start a Fire. And what we're doing is walking together through the book of Acts to find the elements that were present in the early church that enabled it to spread like a wildfire across the known world. And so today, we're going to look at a factor that greatly affects the trajectory of a wildfire. But before we get there, let's just talk about what's happening now that the persecution is raging in Jerusalem. The disciples are sent out into the surrounding region. And rather than becoming afraid and hiding, they become emboldened in their resolve to preach the good news of Jesus to anyone who will listen. And so one of these people is a man named Philip. And Philip goes to the city of Samaria, which is where a, a population of folks who pretty much were despised by the general Jewish population lived. You see, Samaritans are like half-blood Israelites. They're the, they're the remnants of the northern kingdom that split off from Israel back after King Solomon's rule during a civil war. And they were conquered by the Assyrian Empire and over generations and generations had, had married in and, and interbred with all these surrounding nations. And so they still claim to worship the, the God of Israel. They still claim to worship Yahweh. But they worshiped Yahweh mostly in name. According to the Jewish folks down in Judea and Jerusalem, these folks didn't follow the proper customs in the way that they did. And so they were really seen at, by the general population as being unclean heretics. But you know what the cool thing is about Jesus? Jesus was particularly inclined towards people that other people looked at and called unclean. Jesus was particularly inclined towards outsiders. And so it actually makes a lot of sense to me that our story would continue on immediately and shift from Jerusalem to Samaria. And often that's how a fire works, too. Fires often follow a predictable pattern based on the landscape and the environment in which they are burning. And so Philip, our friend, is in Samaria, and he's proclaiming the good news of Jesus as the Messiah to them and he's using the power that is within him of the Holy Spirit to, to heal people, to perform exorcisms. And he's basically liberating the city of Samaria from the bondage that they have to darkness. 
And the response of the people is much better than the response that they got in Jerusalem. The people are, are overjoyed. They're filled with wonder and joy, the Scripture says. There's even this man named Simon who was a magician or a sorcerer of some type that, was, that had great fame in the city of Samaria for the wonderful works and power that he was able to display. Even this, this man named Simon comes to believe that this Philip is wielding a different power than he has ever been able to or has ever experienced. And so all of these people in Samaria are believing this gospel message that Philip is giving to them. And, and so Philip writes back to Jerusalem where, where Peter and John and some of the apostles are and says, hey, we need you to come down here to Samaria. And so that's where we're going to pick up our text. We're going to pick up in Acts chapter 8, verse 15. It says, the two, that's Peter and John, the two went down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as of yet the Spirit had not come upon any of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So we don't really know, uh, you know, why Peter and John had to be the ones with the magic hands, you know, to initiate the Spirit coming to the people of Samaria. But we do see this pattern once again a little bit later on in the book. And so tradition and really the narrative flow of the story seems to point us to the idea that each phase of the widening of the gospel, you know, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then the ends of the earth, were all purposefully initiated by Peter as a fulfillment of a promise that Jesus had made to Peter, that, that Peter would be the one on whom Jesus built the church. That's just kind of some Bible trivia for you. The important thing here is that once this next layer or next phase of humanity is opened to the gospel, the fire is going to spread in an unpredictable way. And that's because the Spirit of God is not something that can be controlled or willed by the hands of humans. Yes, Peter and John seem to be in control of the Holy Spirit because they're the ones that lay their hands on people who receive the Spirit. But what we find is that the Spirit is actually what's guiding Peter and John and all of those involved in the New Jesus movement. And this becomes something that we learn in the response of Simon, this magician. So pick up in, in verse 18. It says, Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. See, Simon's like, whoa, <laughs> that's a cool trick. I want what you have. I, I want that power. I want to be able to manipulate the Spirit of God. I want to be able to lay my hands on people that I choose and give them the Holy Spirit. And Peter's response to him is not kind. He basically tells him to go to hell. Peter sees that the heart of Simon is inclined towards his own personal pursuit of power. 
Simon wants to be able to, to pick and choose who receives the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter knows that this exclusionary practice is not how God operates. The gift of God is for those who want it, not those who are deemed worthy to receive it from some wannabe sorcerer. Peter knows, Peter knows that a man who is willing to try to buy God's gift is also willing to charge others for it. That's an important fact that Christian leaders around the world might want to internalize, right? The gospel is not for sale. Sometimes there are events that happen in our lives that can't be predicted, right? They can't be seen until they occur, and, and they fundamentally alter the course of our lives forever. And sometimes it's something really good, right? Like, like I had no idea what was coming to me on the day that I first laid eyes on my wife. But that day is a day that changed everything for me. But other times, it's not so good, right? Other times, we have an accident or we receive a diagnosis that changes everything, changes our lives forever. And in the land of fire science, which I'm becoming a bit of a junior specialist in while I try to keep this metaphor alive for 12 weeks, And I spent a lot of time on Wikipedia, <laughs> like the National Wildfire Service website, you know. But anyway, in the, in the, in the land of, of fire science, there's a term called critical wind. Now, we know how a fire should react given a certain set of environmental factors. We can, we can look at the landscape of where the fire is, the environment that it is in, and, and determine kind of uh, this predicted course of where it will move next. But there's one factor that can't be predicted, and that factor is called critical wind. See, critical wind is a wind pattern or a phenomenon that overrides every other local and predictable wind or weather pattern to shape or shift the movement of a wildfire in any direction. And the deal with critical wind is that it often comes on suddenly or unpredictably. Frontal winds, thunderstorm winds, whirlwinds, low-level jet streams, even glacial winds, depending on where you are on this globe that we exist on, are all some examples of factors that can arise and greatly shift the movement of a fire. And it did so in the first century as well. You see, the critical wind that the early church experienced was the movement of the Holy Spirit, which coincidentally is quite funny because both the Hebrew and the Greek words for spirit are the same words that they used for wind. And so when the critical wind of God's spirit meets the hearts of people who are inclined to hear and believe the wondrous news of King Jesus, the movement of God's power and presence shifts in unexpected and 
really uncontrollable ways. So once Peter and John are finished in Samaria and they leave to head back to Jerusalem, Philip is still there. And Philip experiences this critical wind of God's movement through the Spirit firsthand. So this is Acts chapter 8, verse 26. It says, Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a, a wilderness road. And so he got up and he went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch there, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was there reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to the chariot and join it. So remember, the gospel has just gone to Samaria, a predictable thing because that's what Jesus said would happen. But then an unexpected thing happens immediately. There's an, an Ethiopian eunuch nearby. Now this man stands out quite a bit because he's both physically, ethnically different than the surrounding people. Samaritans and Jews were Middle Eastern, and this Ethiopian was African. It's clearly a difference in their skin tone. But also, this man is a eunuch, which means that his reproductive organs were augmented, likely as a practice to protect the queen whom he served. So either way, these two defining characteristics make him an interesting character to insert into a story that is slowly unfolding to include more and more different types of people. But the Spirit of God knows something. And so Philip is prompted to approach this man. And in doing so, he finds him reading from the prophet Isaiah. And so Philip, in the next verses, asks him, he says, Do you know what you're reading? And the man essentially says, well, kind of, but not really. He says, I need your help. Can you explain it to me? They then read the verses from the book of Isaiah. And then Philip tells him about the Messiah, Jesus. And then this is what happens next. This is verse 36. It says, As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? It's almost like he kind of expects to be denied. Like he's not Jewish enough. Or he's the, the wrong race and skin tone. Or, or because of his status as a eunuch, he expects rejection because there's specific laws in the book of Deuteronomy that exclude eunuchs from full participation in religious life. And here's the thing. 
The eunuch is every person in our world who looks at the church and says, I'm not good enough for them. They're not for me. And you know what the really sad thing is? That population in our world is growing rapidly. And you know that it's growing because I believe that someone that you love, a child, a niece, or a nephew, a grandchild, or even a student or a coworker, thinks that they aren't good enough to be a part of the community of Jesus' followers. Because someone somewhere out there has told them that they aren't enough because of their past, because of their sexual identity, because they previously or currently struggle with substance abuse, with infidelity, or with any of the other things that they're told that the church hates. But the Spirit of God is a critical wind that is not interested in the predictable pattern of who the church does or at least is perceived to exclude. The Spirit of God goes to where the hearts of humans are ready to hear the message of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God goes to those people and those places through God's people. People like Philip. People like you. People like me. And how are we to respond? Well, this is Philip's response. He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down to the water, and Philip baptized him. There's no questions asked, no answers given. The eunuch says, what prevents me from joining you? And Philip says, stop the chariot. He baptizes him right there into the community of Jesus. And the thing about the Bible is that it is very intentionally crafted. It's put together the way that it's put together for a purpose, to teach us what God wants us to know and understand. And so these two stories... The story uh, of Simon and the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch are, are lumped together back to back for a specific reason. They're meant to contrast and get us to think. To contrast between Simon, this man who wants the power of God so that he can manipulate it, and this man named Philip, who submits to the power of God and goes wherever he's called. And so the question becomes for us, which of these is, is my, is our true heart orientation? Do we see those people who have been told that they're not enough for the church as an obstacle, or, or do we see them as an opportunity? Do we feel the pull of the Spirit towards all people or just towards people that make us feel comfortable? 
Are we fighting against the critical wind of the Holy Spirit that seeks to redirect us in a new, wonderful place? Because it's just comfortable to stay over here. You know, to those of you who might sit here and worship, but you're, you're still unsure whether or not you're, you belong, like, I'm telling you that you belong. No questions asked. Nothing preventing you. You aren't too anything to find yourself at home in this community. You aren't too broken or too whatever to find the love of Jesus in this community of faith. You aren't too anything to be excluded from forgiveness. You are just the person that the Spirit of God is after. Friends, God is, is just so very, very good. And God is just so very, very faithful towards all people. And all that God is calling us to as people who follow Jesus is to not fight against the movement of the gospel. We're called to embrace the, the critical wind, right? The, the wondrous movement of the Holy Spirit, not for personal gain, but for the gain of God's kingdom on earth. We're called to be the open arms that go to and embrace all of the people that God is calling us to. So the question truly becomes, will we, Will you embrace that call? You've got that person in your mind right now, right? That person who you know feels like they just don't, they just don't fit in with Jesus. They certainly don't fit in with Jesus' people. I think it's time that you were the one who went and told them, like, listen, you belong. You're enough for Jesus. Why don't you come? Why don't you come and follow me? Let me show you just how loved you truly are. Let's pray. God, we love you, and we... We thank you for this community of faith. We thank you for just the ways that you continue to show up and show us how loved we are. And God, we pray that you would move us, that you would be that, that critical wind that, that shifts our thinking or maybe just shifts the direction that we move with people in our lives who, who don't know, just how much they belong to you, how much they, they belong here with us, just how much they're loved by you, their creator, the, the one who, who knew them before they were born, the one who, who knows the number of hairs on their head, the one who still, despite whatever their, their past or their present might look like, who still calls them child, who still calls them an heir of the kingdom of God if they so choose to follow you. God, work in our hearts and work in their hearts. 
Help them to, to know without a shadow of a doubt that they have a place in your world, in your love, and in your life. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.